Well, first, let's see if uh, you can hear okay. Does the speaking system work okay? If you can't hear me, let me see if I get higher, closer. You may just have to speak up a little bit. <coughs> okay. So, uh, I'll try to speak up. Can you hear me? So, thank you for inviting me, and I'm uh, delighted to be here. The... Uh, I felt a connection to the Vipassana scene for a long time here in Santa Cruz because of Mary Grace and uh, because my some of my earliest Buddhist meditation was done nearby here. Uh, I, in the 1970s, I would go over and sit at the Zen Center when Kobanchino was meditating. I'd go down from campus over there and walk down, usually walk down, I don't know, and... Um, Wednesday evenings, maybe, mm-hmm. and then I walk up, walk down, walk down, <coughs> sit, and then walk back. Sometimes hitchhike back mm-hmm. to campus. And then there was Haridas who was down the street too. Just remember mm-hmm. that too. So you remember Haridas? Mm-hmm. He's still there. He's still there. He's a Madonna. Madonna, down yeah, he had it. It was great. It was like it was a room like this, but much bigger. And uh, I didn't know where I was going to but the first time, but I mean. They, all these hippies rocking out <laughs> with Haridas and doing this devotional. So, the, so you know, a little bit what brought me down here was because of this connection now that we have between our Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City and Insight Santa Cruz. With um, with uh, us having bought this bought this property in Scotts Valley to be a retreat center. And so, in a big way, we've come into your neighborhood. <laughs> and uh, we've been very uh, welcome. It's really been touching to me, uh, the warm welcome and support that so many people have provided us. And um, and uh, some of you have been uh, supporters, have come out and volunteered. There's been gardening, work, work days, and different things. and. Um, Betsy, who's part of your community, is uh, is um, uh, caretaking and gardening up there in a big way. It's very nice. And, and Anna, who's been part of my world for many years because of cooking for Spirit Rock, has also been a big contributor and supporter and contributing her art yeah, there. But I didn't see it today, I apologize, but I was told that your Dharma wheel is up there. So, yeah. So, so many. So, it feels really wonderful to feel welcomed by the community, and I hope that uh, the center up there will be a resource for all of you, and and we'll, we'll all feel kind of integrated together as a big, you know, conspiracy together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the word conspiracy because it literally means to breathe together. So we'll all go breathe together. That's what we're doing here for the last forty-five minutes conspiring together. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, so I have gone a little bit around to a few places in the Bay Area, so I usually don't speak, partly to introduce the idea that we're doing this retreat center. It's a big deal that um, we're, it's a you know, second retreat center is appearing in the Bay Area after Spirit Rock. I mean, we're pretty small compared to Spirit Rock, but it's a still wonderful, I think a wonderful thing, and I'm very excited about it, very excited to be more to do with the Santa Cruz community. Um, I thought today I would give a little talk about retreats, 
since that's kind of what brought me down here was the fact that we had this retreat center. And if you want to learn uh, more about the retreat center, certainly you can ask me later if you want. But I came here with Catherine uh, Byers sitting there in the chair. Catherine, would you stand up for a minute? And uh, she came down to sleep at the retreat center. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for her first time to stay there tonight. And, and uh, so she came down here also. Uh, and she's a big-time uh, uh, you know, member of IMC and has been president there and been very actively involved. Now she's very involved with the fundraising and other aspects of the retreat center, putting it on. If you have any questions about, uh, at the end, you want to ask her about what we're doing, uh, she's happy to answer questions and things like that. So about retreats, um, I suppose that the word retreat is certainly an English word, and it's a word that is kind of a new word for Buddhism, that people go on retreats. Um, but since the time of the Buddha, there have been some incomparable, where people have gone off away from their ordinary life and engaged in a period of intensive meditation practice. The story of the Buddha before he was enlightened was the story of a man who did that, um, sat under the Bodhi tree for a long time and attained his awakening. After his awakening, he continued to uh, periodically go on retreats. Uh, the stories of him going off for three months. He'd, he would say, if anybody asks me what I'm doing, I'm doing mindfulness of breathing. And uh, off he went for three months to sit in the forest. There's a beautiful account, I don't know if it's idealized or not, of uh, one day of the Buddha's life. And here it is. Then, when it was morning, the Buddha dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, went into Savati, the town, for alms. Then a number of monks went to the Venerable Ananda <coughs> and said to him, Friend Ananda, it is long since we heard a talk on the Dhamma from the Blessed One's own eclipse. It would be good if we could get to hear such a talk from Ananda. Um, so then Ananda resp- responds, Then let the Venerable Ones go to the Brahman Ramaka's hermitage. Perhaps you will get to hear a talk on the Dhamma from the Buddha's own lips. Yes, friend, they replied. So they go off to this other place. It's in the morning, right? The Buddha's out getting his alms. It's early in the morning. And they have this conversation. So they go off. Then the Blessed One had wandered for alms in Savati and returned from his alms round. After his meal, he addressed the Venerable Ananda. Ananda, let us go to the eastern park for the day's abiding. The day's abiding means to go off and meditate for the day. So, so far his day has been kind of luxurious, right? He gets up, gets dressed, goes into town in the morning, and goes for alms, gets his food for the day, comes back, eats it, and then he says <coughs> to his attendant, let's go into the park, into the forest, and meditate for the day. And Ananda says, yes, venerable sir. Then they went and did this for their day's abiding. Then, when it was evening, the Buddha rose from meditation and addressed the Venerable Ananda. Ananda, let us go to the eastern bathing place to bathe. Yes, Venerable Sir. The Venerable Ananda replied. Then the Blessed One went into the went went with the Venerable Ananda to the eastern bathing place to bathe. 
When he was finished, he came up out of the water and stood in one robe, drying his limbs. Then the Venerable Ananda said to the Blessed One, Venerable Sir, the Brahmin Ramaka's hermitage is nearby. That hermitage, hermitage is agreeable and delightful. <laughs> Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One went there out of compassion. The Blessed One consented in silence. So I think uh, when when Ananda says, when you go there out of compassion, it means out of compassion for some people. Someone's there that needs the Buddha, would like the Buddha. And perhaps he knew that being a hermitage, maybe there would be monastics there. So the Buddha goes there and he gives them a Dharma talk, a talk which is considered very significant in the tradition because it's a talk of his own enlightenment, the process of how he became enlightened, one version of it. So this is called the Sutta is called the Noble Search. But right now, I just wanted to highlight the beginning of it. You know, it's a pretty busy life. Get up, go for breakfast, <laughs> go off and meditate for the day, take a bath, and give a Dharma talk. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> and then, so, so here is an example of a, of a life that was dedicated a lot to meditation and to teaching. I'm sure there are other days that he devoted himself to other things besides sitting and meditating all day. Um, the extensive record we have of the Buddha indicates that he was someone who was very engaged in society and the people of all classes and <coughs> positions in society was out roaming and talking and engaged in a big way. But, you know, life was simpler back then, perhaps. And so, in that simple life, um, without cell phones and things like that, that... Um, you know, there was a lot more time for meditation. So since that time, uh, it's been a tradition for monastics to go spend time on retreat, spend time where they dedicate much of their time to meditation. And one of the unique things that's happened here in the modern West is a large group of lay people who are not monastics interested in meditation practice. And whereas for the monastics, they did, usually didn't have like you know specific retreat times. You know, you show up, you get a welcome from the teacher, <laughs> and then you stay for a certain length of time. Then you have a closing circle, <laughs> clean your room. <clears throat> I think it was much more fluid. And, uh, people would just kind of, uh, so many times would just go off into the woods by themselves, or they would um, you know come and go. But here we have these things that are very organized. And it makes some sense for the kind of life we live, because none of us here, I believe, are monastics. And so uh, we have lives of family and work and many things going on. Uh, so how is it that those of us who are interested in meditation can take the practice further, deeper, more f- fully? And so here in, in the West, we have started to we've organized this whole movement of retreats. And it's a powerful thing, these retreats that we organize. Uh, I think of it as, uh, you know, our cultural way uh, of doing the vision quest, the, the, you know, the 40 days in the desert. The, you know, there's, uh, there's all kinds of you know, ways in which different cultures have for letting people touch um, aspects of their life, aspects of the heart, their mind, their society, or touch the sacred which are difficult to touch in the ordinary business of daily life. 
people down through the have found it's very useful to step out of ordinary life. And some people say you don't only understand your ordinary life if you get to step out of it long enough to look back at it from a different perspective. Some of you maybe had it, haven't been on retreats, have experienced maybe of traveling and the traveling or a big long vacation or something, some or maybe an illness that takes you out of your life for long enough that you see it in a new way. So for Buddhists, we have this thing we call retreats, stepping out. And um, it's a beautiful thing, profound thing. And as a teacher, for both of us, I think we're, I'm in awe uh, of uh, the tremendous transformation that goes on in individuals when they get a chance to step out of their ordinary life and look at their life in a deeper way. And with that depth of practice, of understanding, of opening of the heart that happens, uh, bring that back into the ordinary life as a gift, as a support, as a new way of being uh, in this life of ours. It's really a phenomenal thing. So uh, I'd like to suggest this evening that there are four functions of these Buddhist retreats that we offer. And you could divide it up differently perhaps, but we just offer this today. And one of the reasons I want to talk about four functions, different functions, is that the retreats we offer in the Vipassana tradition are relatively standardized here in America. I mean, there's some variation, but, um, you know, should the Dharma talk be at 7.15 or 7.30? Or 4. Or 4. Some of the teachers are shifting out to the afternoon talks. So, radical things like that. <laughs> Uh, but they're somewhat standardized, and uh, so everyone participates who comes to more or less the standard form of what we're doing. But as teachers who are interviewing the retreatants, we see that if there's 40 people on the retreat, there are 40 different retreats going on. Mm-hmm. And everyone, everyone has their own particular version and form of what they're, what's unfolding for them and developing for them and what they're having to work with. And it's really beautiful how, in some ways, it seems like it's tailor-made. You get what you need. <laughs> you get what you have to kind of contend with and meet and work with and develop. And so this idea of four functions is the idea that um, sometimes people are working on all four. Sometimes you might be working on one of the functions, one of the purposes of retreat um, for a long time. And then at some point you might switch and do another. So the four that I... Uh, think of, is uh, recovering, discovering, cultivating, and freeing. So recovering, discovering, cultivating, and freeing. So the recovering is a big part, um, because um, in the most conventional use of the word recovering, uh, many of us are recovering from life, you know, from busy life, work, family, um, I mean, right now there's a huge impact of our mindfulness practice <coughs> as stress reduction because so many people in our society are stressed. So many people in our society are sleep deprived. And so when people go on retreat, uh, people often need to recover. And sometimes they need to sleep the first few days more than they need to meditate. And so they're recovering. Or they're um, de-stressing and, and kind of finding some place where they feel safe and relaxed, there's not a lot of demands, and they can begin to unwind Sometimes they can unwind in deeper ways than if you go on vacation because there's less demands on you, less things you're trying to do or accomplish or not accomplish or whatever, just do. And so there's an ordinary recovering that goes on 
uh, healing of the ordinary the stresses and activities of life. Sometimes that recovery uh, involves deep healing uh, when there's been uh, some tragedy, people dealing with grief, the death of a, lo- of a loved one. Or I remember there were people, uh, for a little while we had a few people come on retreat, Spirit Rock, who uh, had been through 9-11 in New York City, in, in the towers, and they were traumatized. It was really dramatic. And uh, it was a very safe and beautiful place to come to a retreat and feel held and supported and nurtured um, and, uh, and feel some kind of healing happen, just being there, independent of doing meditation. So there's a kind of recovery uh, that goes on. So in some sense, maybe retreats are, you know, recovery program. <coughs> Recovering humans, <laughs> but it's also recovering. Um, uh, recovery also means recovering things that have been lost, and in the life that many people can live, sometimes there are deeper values, deeper motivations, sense of purpose that get covered over and lost in life and activities of life. Uh, someone might have a, a really big intention uh, to organize their life in a certain way for a certain purpose. Um, but then um, uh, making money and family gets in the way and they can't follow through on what they were hoping their life was going to be about. Or they have uh, deep values uh, or deep sense of connection to life, to nature, to themselves. They have an experience of peace that they had as a child. You know, for me, I had uh, moments of profound peace as a child that I forgot about until I started sitting retreats. And one of the recovery, you know, recovered memories for me was uh, uh, that peace. And they could come sitting in meditation and retreat, kind of this upwelling of memories and a felt sense of that peace returned. And I said, wow, I remember this. This is really, this is really important for me. Um, I've known people go on retreat and they rediscover uh, ethical values that are really important for them. They know they're important, but they've lost touch with them. They live the life which maybe is not as ethical as they wish. And what, what gets recovered is a deeper sense of ethics. And so then they come back and they bring that to the world. So a very important part of retreat is this recovery. Another part of retreat is discovery, which is um, you're not recovering something or, or healing something, but you are uh, discovering something new that you've never known before. You're discovering aspects of yourself. Um, there's a whole bunch of psychological insights that can happen. Uh, they say that self-knowledge is seldom good news. <laughs> but luck- luckily that cliche is not always true. But uh, certainly there's a lot of uh, uh, surprises that people have when they sit down and are quiet long enough to really see what's going on in their mind, the underlying operating system of their mind. What drives it? It's not. It's fairly common for people to retreatants to come to us on retreat, people are new and say, Wow, I had no idea. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea that um, underlying everything I do is fear. You know, it's there in the background. I you know now that I'm quiet enough and watch, you know, watch what informs my thoughts and my feelings and my actions, there's fear behind it. Um, the, um, for me, I remember my early retreats was where I discovered that the only thing I could call myself after a while was I'm an egomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> and I, maybe, I, I don't know if I was more than most people, 
I kind of assumed I was kind of a normal egomaniac. <laughs> you know, but there's a tremendous amount of self-preoccupation that goes on in the inner life. It's really embarrassing. To be, <laughs> you know, if we have, if we're going to broadcast out, you know, what you're actually thinking all the time. <laughs> it, would, it would stand out to everyone else how much is self-referential in your thinking. So, uh, in the silence of retreat, in this ongoing practice of retreat where you're practicing on and on, there's a way in which you discover aspects of yourself that you can't discover. It's very hard to sc- discover in any other way. Um, sometimes the retreats uh, for meditators, if you meditate every day, and you might have certain results, would it not be good or something. But uh, I found that I had, when I, when I was a new meditator, that I had certain... The meditation was okay every day I sat, but I had certain intentions and certain approaches to meditating which were not so healthy, you know, you know pieces of it. And, they were, and because I did it so little, the, it, those problems didn't stand out. Like if you have shoes that don't quite fit for you, if you walk, you know, only a few hundred yards every day, there's no problem. You don't even notice the shoes have a problem, you, don't, you know, are bad fit. But if you walk for a mile or two miles, after a while you realize, well, that shoe's causing a blister. It's tight. It's pinching. And now I see there's a problem. So the same thing on retreat. There could be some way where you're a little bit off in your meditation practice. And you only get to see it if you try meditating for the whole mile or two miles or for a long time. And then you get to see, wow, I'm really striving. I'm pushing. I have a lot of expectation in how I'm meditating. So retreats can show that and give us a chance then to do a course correction and, and clarify and simplify or, or make our meditation a little bit more, more kind of healthy approach. So uh, the discovery process, discovering aspects of our own psychology and how we are. Uh, there's also discovering um, 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 beautiful things about ourselves. The, um, when, when, when the mind can get quiet enough when normal agitation and preoccupations and fears and worries are not operating, when stress kind of begins to leave our body, the, 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 when the decu- decreased stress, decreased distractions, more rest in the mind, there's like a lot of more space in awareness, a lot more space in the heart and the mind for some of the more subtle but profound of... Um, Feelings, influence of states to begin showing themselves. And I kind of, I don't know if it's true for everyone, but for myself I feel things like um, um, real uh, compassion, love, um, beautiful forces of integrity, joy, um, loving kindness, some peace, are kind of like shy. They're easily over, they're easily overshadowed. And so it's uh, by having them kind of settle out all the, all the distractions and agitation might settle out, these other things have a chance to surface, these shy little things, and they become, they become stronger. And it's, it's transformative for people to begin experiencing for prolonged periods of time on retreat. Prolonged period of time can be 15 minutes or you know, half an hour for a day or something. Um, an experience of peace, of well-being, of rest, of joy, of love, of compassion, of connectedness to others in the world around them, that we seldom have in daily life. Seldom do we have those experiences in, in such an ongoing way. We might have moments here and there, but to have it you know, for hours on time is, um, 
you know, is, does something to the cells of our bodies. It kind of, it kind of washes and cleanses and heals and in a way that um, is, I think is incomparable. So we're discovering this capacity of being in life in a different way. Sometimes it's a big surprise. I remember there was a story of a woman who was on retreat. And she came, she was relatively new to all this, and she went to the teacher and she said, um, I, I'm having this really strange experience. And she said, well, can you note it? Can you, can you tell me what it is? Or can you describe it? And, no, I can't describe it. I don't have a label for it. And the teacher said, well, just go look more carefully. That's what we, that's, a, that's our fallback answer. <laughs> we always say that. Go look more carefully. <laughs> and, um, so I looked more carefully. She came back a couple of days later and she said, oh, I figured out what it was, what it is. It's calm. <laughs> <laughs> and calm was so, so was a foreign thing for me. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And so it was strange. I was, you know, you know, didn't know what to do. So we discovered, some people discover these things and it's beautiful what can be discovered. The beautiful range, uh, the range of beautiful states and emotions that are, are possible. Um, can be quite can make make, get, make a big impression on us when we have them on retreat. Uh, and then also the discovery process is, is because it's mindful mindfulness. We're trying to have this insight to see clearly. There's sometimes we have a chance to see more deeply into our life and what it means to be a human being um, in a way that we can't when we live our life with a lot of preferences. We live our life with a lot of judgments. We live our life with a lot of concepts and ideas about how things are. And because preferences and likes and dislikes and agendas and expectations and concepts involve a relatively, uh, involve a certain degree of agitation of the mind. The mind is active when you have all those things operating. When you begin settling and getting calm enough to have those kinds of activities in the mind quiet down, it gives a chance for for the inner eye to see with greater clarity. It's kind of like uh, you've, cl- you've cleaned the windows and now you can see out the windows more clearly. And so then you start seeing something which is uh, in discovering, not something which is your own, about your own psychology, but rather something about the universal, about human nature. And for our, in our tradition, we say some of these universal insights are transformative for people. So the third, so, so there's recovery, discovery, and then there's cultivation. And that uh, a big part of meditation practice is that you're actually uh, developing yourself, cultivating certain capacities and skills. Uh, not so different as going to the gym and working out and developing your muscles, cultivating st- uh, strength. The, um, uh, in the retreat, we're not so much developing physical strength, but there is the mind as a muscle, the different skills and capacities of the mind are muscles that can be strengthened and developed. You can develop greater concentration. You can develop greater uh, capacity for mindfulness. You can dri- develop greater patience. You can develop greater capacity for loving kindness, for compassion. You can de- uh, cultivate greater capacity for equanimity. You can cultivate greater capacity of inquiry and questioning and investigation. These are all capacities the mind has. And rather than just leaving it to chance, uh, what which of these appear, just let it be whatever your native capacity happens to be, just leave it that way, 
uh, you could actually get involved with strengthening these different mental or uh, qualities. And for Buddhism, this is considered very important because having some of these things as strengths helps us do the strong work, the very important work of seeing clearly and of letting go. To be able to rest, to be able to rest the mind, um, takes a lot of strength of mind. Some people think that, oh, it's just a matter of kind of relaxing on the couch and just letting go and that's it. Um, but uh, the deepest, deepest capacity of peace that Buddhism points to takes it really requires a developed mind to, to do it. Some of the things that are quite challenging that we encounter on retreat, it's not all peace and bliss. Um, it's uh, be quite challenging. Uh, it really helps a lot if you develop um, character and the character qualities that see, helps you see you through as, uh, these kind of difficulties, patience and equanimity and so forth. And it's a beautiful thing that you can cultivate yourself. And we know that in many endeavors in society that people do cultivate themselves. If you learn a foreign language, you learn a musical instrument, you learn a hobby, you're cultivating and developing yourself in one way or the other. So we're taking this idea of cultivation, we're bringing it to those forces of the mind, of the heart, which can help um, the fourth function of retreat. And the fourth function is is freeing is to help us become free or liberated. And this is really the kind of the central kind of purpose or direction of Buddhism is to um, support people to become, to shed or let go of or drop the ways in which they might be, um, sometimes use very dramatic language, enslaved. The ways in which we're caught, the ways in which we live under under compulsions, the the ways in which our Maybe our emotions or our ideas or our reactions or our judgments pull us around by the nose and there's not that much freedom. We feel constricted, we feel limited. And so uh, the freeing is to free ourselves from those limitations, free ourselves from the clinging, the bondage, free ourselves from the contractions, the limitations that so many you know, of our psychological forces can put on us. Uh, our fear, our greed, our strong sense of identification with certain... Uh, identities and so to begin shedding that which is extra shedding the extra uh, limitations on us and freeing uh, is one of the most beautiful things that any human being can do partly because as we become freer and have less and less limitations then um, the capacity for compassion and caring and empathy uh, becomes stronger and as that becomes stronger uh, we become uh, someone who can make a beautiful difference in the world around us. And my hope is that Buddhist practice, retreat practice, is not something we do just for ourselves, but it's something that we do uh, for the sake of our society. Uh, there's so much suffering in our world, and I, you know, it's, uh, I think it's really beautiful if we could enter into our society and all the suffering of our, our world and be... Um, the agents of change, be people who kind of bring um, a greater capacity for peace and joy and love and harmony among everyone. And uh, and, and I hope that uh, as we bring this retreat center into Santa Cruz, you know, your county, your, that uh, all of us together will conspire <laughs> to make it a 
uh, wellspring of benefits for our wider society. So those are my thoughts. And um, so now if you have any questions that you'd like to ask, we have 15 minutes or so. Or so. so. Yes, please. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about the threefold vision that the retreat center is part of. Oh, Betsy asked me if I talked about the threefold vision that our retreat center is part of. So uh, um, we've had it, uh, you know, part of the orbit of IMC. Uh, we've had this community center, much like yours here, um, and then we had uh, the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies that um, I used to have its bank account in Santa Cruz. <laughs> it doesn't? Not anymore, no. Oh. But we, we had strong roots because uh, a number, number of the founders of it were from Santa Cruz. And um, the um, Center for Buddhist Studies. And now we have this retreat center. And so... Uh, I was uh, I'd written a document for Spirit Rock about this thing, this threefold vision for Spirit Rock, which I don't know where it kind of ended up in the filing cabinet <laughs> somewhere. But people at I'm cooking. cooking, it's cooking slowly. But people at IMC saw that and said, "Gil, that's great. Why don't you write something like that for us too?" So I wrote a, a vision document, kind of, of describing, um, borrowing from the Spirit Rock uh, vision document of of a. Um, Located bar because I wrote it for Spirit Rock. <laughs> <laughs> the um, um, uh, how to have these three centers that are in mutual relationship with each other, each of them which expresses different values, and uh, and so I said that uh, each of them is a home for uh, one's a home for the Buddha, one's a home for the Dharma, and one's a home for the Sangha. The retreat center is the home for the Buddha. That's when you're going to, in a least symbolic way, that's where the path of liberation flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Dharma is kind of like, you know, the teaching. So that's the, the Sati Center of Buddhist Studies. And then the Sangha is the community center, which is the IMC. Um, the, uh, and so each of them kind of represent different values, different approaches, different emphases. And th- together, you have the full refuge. And so different uh, phases in a person's life, they might do different things. Sometimes they do the community aspect, sometimes they do more study, sometimes they do more retreats. They flow between them. And, um, and this was a vision that was very inspiring and meaningful for a lot of people. And so I think it's pretty cool that we have these three kind of places that kind of mm-hmm. can, can be organized this way. So if you want to read about that, that document, it's on somewhere on, I think if you go on the Insight Retreat Center website, uh, I think on that, on one of those pages, you'll see that document. Yes, please. What would you say are the minimum requirements for a retreat? Like, um, or Oh, before going on retreat, your first yeah. retreat? It's a good question. Um, I'll give you the, the generic answer that I like, and then I'll s- make exceptions. <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the generic kind of, kind of maybe kind of practical or pragmatic answer is uh, to build for it slowly. 
So you would first perhaps uh, start meditating and maybe meditate at least for th- regularly, more or less on a daily basis for about three months. And then perhaps uh, do a one-day retreat. And then if there's a place you can do it, to do maybe a, a you know, non-residential two-day retreat. Or then go do a two-day residential retreat perhaps, or a short something short. And then after a while do something longer. And then do something longer. So kind of build slowly. And for some people that works really well. Kind of get your toe in the, in the, in the pond a little bit and feel the water and then go further. Um, so the exception is that um, there are uh, plenty of people who know nothing about meditation whatsoever and who sign up for a 10-day retreat. <laughs> and we've got people who do that for three-month retreats. <laughs> and uh, a few stories like that. Not and Not anymore. <laughs> I guess we're more careful now. Now there's requirements and you have to fill out a form application. But back in the 70s, there were people stories like that. And, um, and some of those people who just jump in cold like that, jump in the deep end, do wonderful. It really works well for them. And for some people, I think who jump in the deep end like that, they drown. It doesn't work. They go home or something. They give up. Um, so, you know, for me, the, my going on retreat has never been a logical thing to do. It's not, it's not like I never thought irrationally, you know, a strategy, I should do this and this and this, you know. But really it was a, um, some, for me, I would, I would say it was intuitive. It was an intuitive feeling, a yearning or a call for to go on retreat again. And in my early years of practice, uh, by the end of the retreat, I clearly did not want to go again. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like never, it wasn't like, I didn't have, not like I had a horrible experience, but like, well, I did these Zen sashims, right? So they were really tough. And I was like, wow, I was exhausted after seven days. And like, enough for that. I didn't even want to talk about it. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and so then I would, um, I would uh, just continue my daily practice. And then it seemed like it was after about four or five months, this feeling would begin happening. It's like, I'd like to go again. Just, you know, it's like this intuition, this feeling. And then about six months, I would go on another, these seven-day retreats. And... Um, and then for me, as part of my intuitive kind of approach, um, and I sat every day pretty, pretty you know, regularly, um, except for the week before going on retreat, and I would not, I would stop, <laughs> and that was my way of preparing. And often I tell people it's good to sit more. And as a teacher, I say sit more before you get ready to go. You sit more, sit twice a day, or whatever you can. But I think that's a good advice, but it wasn't good advice for me. <laughs> And just somehow my intuitive thing was I would stop sitting and uh, before the retreat. And I think that what it, what I told myself, I don't I can't explain it, but it was kind of like um, clearing things out. I was meditating every day and I was going to start with kind of a fresh slate and kind of just take a break. So when I came on retreat, it was fresh or something. So does that answer your question well enough? <laughs> yes, please. Could you? Uh, I haven't heard of the Sati Center before. Can you talk more about what that is? So, Sati Center for Buddhist Studies was started in 1997, uh, and it was. Uh, we felt at that time that there were some wonderful places to practice retreats and sit and meditate and hear uh, kind of retreat or meditation Dharma talks and stuff. But there was also an important place uh, for some people to get a little bit more of a, a grounding in uh, the suttas and the discourses of the Buddha and the history of Buddhism and Buddhist teachings than was available normally 
in uh, the scene he had back then. So uh, we had this idea of starting a study center, and it was kind of a, you know kind of a mom and pop operation. We never 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 had a place of our own, but we would uh, put on uh, day long uh, classes. We invited scholars or people who had some kind of scholarly uh, approach to study of Buddhism. People who had the ability to have a critical view of even their own tradition and step outside, be a little objective of it. And um, and so we've had many, many people come in uh, over the years to teach. And um, and, and uh, once we had IMC, we started doing all that day-long events there. And um, about eight years ago, we had a big uh, jump in the growth for the Saudi Center where we started teaching a year-long uh, introduction to uh, our training in Buddhist chaplaincy to uh, train people for the kind of uh, background training that you should have as Buddhists to be hospital chaplains or prison chaplains and stuff like that. So it was a much more developed program. And then, uh, uh, and then as we started training these people to be chaplains, it became clear that uh, they needed, in order to be get professional chaplaincy jobs, they needed to have even more training because you need to have show that you've had master level. Um, uh, training in religious studies, and so, um, and for other reasons, um, uh, we've had this idea that it would be good to develop a master's program. And so, this year, we, this summer, actually, we just, we formed a partnership with the Institute for Buddhist Studies in Berkeley, so that we could do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, we're now starting. Actually, in a few weeks, you could go sign up in Berkeley with IBS and get a um, master's in Buddhist studies with it on the Theravadan track. Mm-hmm. There's a flyer on our board. Oh, there's a flyer on the bulletin board there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, so that's kind of the study center. Yes? Um, this is not a question. I just wanted to express some gratitude to you and... and particularly to your website at IMC. I, I've been living in New Zealand for five years, and we don't have a mothership like uh, Spirit Rock. And, and so th- there can be some disconnection. I just want you to know you're hugely popular in New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, we have a, um, an email newsletter that goes out, and you know, a lot of your articles in there. Wow. And teachers speak at the end. Well, I did that. Thank you. I do a lot of study with your website, too. So uh-huh. thank, thank you. Thank you're thank big you. in the world. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Yes. Could you describe what's available on the website? What's available? That's that she's referring. Oh, the, the the big thing that I mean, the big thing that uh, really I think that most people are, are when they think about our website is Audio Dharma. Mm-hmm. We have all these, like you. I guess you have two now podcasts. Mm-hmm. So um, we were one of the first people to start putting up Buddhist podcasts about ten years ago, more I think. So we just have this embarrassing long list of talks <laughs> that you can listen to you can spend you know years listening to talks mm-hmm. and so people and so some of them were organized I mean there's a list of talks and you can organize them by teacher so everybody who teaches at IMC their talks go up and so you can see who's, you know, if you like a particular teacher you can sort through them and then um, from, especially for my talks some of them are also organized by themes so like there's a ten perfections and the seven factors of awakening and, and you know Five hindrances, and so you can kind of go through particular themes and and listen to those as well. So, so I think people seem to like that. Mm-hmm. Are some of the things from the Salty Center on there as well? Uh, some of them, yes. Uh, Salty Center, kind of, yes and no. The Salty Center uh, has its own website, mm-hmm. 
And uh, some of the classes, uh, day-long classes, Substance has offered, have been recorded and are available to be listened to. Like we have a whole day, so, you know, Stephen Batchelor and uh, Arjun Amaro and Tanisha Bhikkhu. So you can participate in those day-long classes online that way. Okay. One more, one more, and then we stop. Um, I just would like to know how your, the retreat center is going to be run, as far as um, having retreats or going on self-retreats and uh, so forth. Well, so, well, the, uh, yeah. So, I'm wondering how it's going to run too. <laughs> <laughs> I, the idea uh, primarily is to have organized retreats. Um, I don't think it's going to be so suitable for self-retreats. There might be some times that the people can do that. Um, um, uh, but I think the idea, the idea we have is that this is really going to be a place for um, organized retreats. So, and, the, and so we, I think our, we, we're, we're a lot from the, we got permission from the county to have like 220 days a year of retreats. Which is actually a lot. I didn't, I thought, I, I was kind of concerned. What? You know, this whole place and like, you know, only two thirds of the year, and I mentioned I, I mentioned it to Spirit Rock that we got 220 days, and they said, "Gil, you must be crazy." <laughs> That's a lot of work, and um, so how much we'll do, I don't know. But you know, we'll probably do one something like a 10 day, seven day, 10 day retreat a month, and then perhaps a couple of shorter ones, five day. Or, it'd be nice to do some weekend retreats because a lot of people at work. That's nice for them. And then eventually it'd be nice to do some longer retreats, but we might build up, like it's like generic advice is uh, build up for that. And so uh, you know, just, we'll start with this teaching, this, offering the smaller ones, and then at some point two-week retreat. And it'd be nice someday to offer a month long, especially in the summer, because Spirit Rock and IMS does the fall and the spring and winter. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of people who are free in the summer, like college students, that, uh, that yes. people... So that to have a month long would be nice in the summer. So, you know, we, you know, if it all goes well, we can, this is something we aspire to. So, is that what you had in mind? Yes, no, very interesting. So, it's going to be so nice to have it right here. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. Why don't you say something about the Donna? Oh, something about Donna, I forgot. Um, I, Not your Donna tonight, but, oh, but okay. the way the center speaks. Oh. Um, so, um, at the Center in Redwood City Insight Meditation Center everything that we do there is offered for free it's freely given There's, we don't charge for anything um, and so uh, and about seven years ago we started putting on retreats and uh, in the same uh, residential retreats in the same uh, ways and so we had, I think last year we offered six or seven retreats the shortest was I think three days and the longest was two weeks I think the normal one was about four of them were, I think, week-longs, seven days. And um, we rent a hostel in Los Altos Hills and uh, bring in a cook and buy the food and offer it all freely. <coughs> and um, it's called Dana. And it's our feeling that uh, Buddhist practice uh, works most beautifully and folds for people most, uh, in the most inspiring and meaningful and profound way when it's uh, never charged for, it's offered for free and freely given creates a, a field of goodwill of generosity and gratitude of gratitude which I think is the, the the ground out of which 
the deep inner transformational work of this practice can work the best. So we've been committed to that. And so it, our commitment uh, is to do the same thing for this retreat center. Because once we're up and running, is we'll offer all the retreats for free. And uh, people who like business models tell me this is not a good business model. And, uh, and there are people who tell me, people, I mean, there's people. They're saying it too. And people have told people have told me that there are, that there are bets out there in the wider world whether we're going to pull it off. And people have their doubts, but but that's what people said uh, 10, 11 years ago when we bought our church in Redwood City. They said you can't run a center this way, and maybe it's true. Maybe it's true. Maybe you can't, but we haven't found out yet. <laughs> maybe it takes no, longer, longer, longer. No, long, have we? No, you haven't. Yeah. No, we're still, we haven't found out yet. We haven't found out yet. It takes about 100 years to find out. <laughs> yeah, 100 years, and we say, I, guess, I think this works. So anyway, so it's a beautiful thing. It's worked beautifully for IMC, and, and um, it's a much bigger deal to do it up there uh, in the retreat center. And um, I, mean, it, it, I mean, the idea is that we offer it freely, but there's a lot of people in the community that want to support that, and will offer in their own way, in their own freely given way, support to make that happen. Um, and, uh, and that's actually, you know, been beautifully the case, and it's been one of the most really beautiful parts of my life is to see the community support, the community harmony, or community kind of support, or inspiration, or involvement that can grow in the system that we have. And I, uh, I believe that this is pretty much the same, you do the same thing here, mm-hmm. so uh, I love it that, that we can share this culture and this approach, and that you understand what that is. So that's the what we're doing. So that's why the confusion was about what you've done. So um, because I, I was co- partly because I was coming here to tell you about the retreat center and all that, I thought the right thing to do was to, um, uh, if, if there's any teacher down today, like sometimes there is, that it would all go to uh, the retreat center. We're fundraising right now uh, because uh, it was we got this big building up there. Um, and uh, but we have to remodel it to make it ter- turned into a retreat center. It was a it was a it was great because it was an Alzheimer's facility. <laughs> so they were into forgetting, and we were into we were into, <laughs> we're into remembering. <laughs> so we we have to now remodel it, and uh, we keep coming across the county. <laughs> the Santa Cruz County Building Department is a very interesting, beautiful. They've, they've, been, they've been actually so they've been actually very supportive of the whole process, much more than people told us they would be. Um, but still, their requirements are so it's very expensive. Our remodeling, so we're fundraising, and so it'd be nice. So, so li- I would like to, you know, whatever teacher Donna comes in today, you should know that that will go to to support the retreat center fundraising efforts. So, then you end with this something. That, uh, a couple of announcements. A couple of your sort. Yeah. Can I have my mic for a minute? You know, usually at this time of year, Gil and I are teaching at Vajrapani together, and this is the first summer that that hasn't happened. So, this is sort of a little one night whiff of Vajrapani. <laughs> it's really sweet to be able to be here together. Um, just a couple of things. One is that on Saturday.